Welcome to Public Cloud for Public Good, a podcast talking about cloud sustainability and how we can use public cloud services to make the world a better place. Thank you, Simon, for joining and coming on as a guest. Absolute pleasure. I think, you know, for, for me, I followed your work for, for a little bit of, of, of time because I, I worked in, in government and, and went through a little bit of the GDS sheep dip training on, on sort of, you know, ways of working and, and, and digital and, you know, wardly mapping, which you've, I guess, worked on over the years and collaborated with others and, and, and produced and, and, and published and, 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 you know, was named after you as... as Basically, it was a really interesting tool, and and you know that's why I've started following you. But the reason why I sort of wanted to get on is 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 a lot of the sort of more recent things, and 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 sort of just you as an individual and your focus on sustainability and how you've changed some of the ways that you live and work based on those views, and and, and maybe even how they've changed over the years. But so that's why my spiel. So thank you so much. Mind doing an introduction, introducing yourself and, and maybe covering some bits and, and we'll see where we can pick up to start. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, I, I'm just going to say thank you for the service you've given. Uh, GDS was a, a, an amazing change and transformation uh, to UK government. Uh, it, for me, that started with writing something called Better for Less Paper with Liam Maxwell, Mark Thompson, Jerry Vishendu. I was one of the uh, contributors to this and uh, which which helped create something called Spend Control, obviously, and supported the formation of GDS. And that's where mapping comes into it. So a bit of background about myself. Um, gosh, I, I, I built companies. I've sold companies. I, I now work in research where I use the technique that I developed long ago called mapping to conduct uh, the research that I do. And mapping is simply a way of looking at a competitive environment and looking at how uh, things are changing in that space and the sort of patterns that are being applied. Now, it's called Wardley Mapping. Why was it called Wardley Mapping? It's interesting because I, I around about 2002, 2003, I was um, uh, running a particular company. And uh, we were very successful, rapidly growing. But I hadn't got a clue what I was doing. I was supposed to be leading. I, I describe it as more ra- random bumbling. But there we are. Because of a bunch of accidents, I ended up in a bookstore. Uh, the bookseller had asked me if I'd ever read Sun Tzu's The Art of War. I hadn't. Uh, she persuaded me to buy two different versions of the book, which I'm very grateful for, actually, because they're different translations. And it was in that that I noticed there was this pattern about five factors that matter to competition. One, have a purpose and moral imperative. Two, understand your landscape, uh, the environment you're competing in. Three, understand the climactic patterns, like the weather or how that landscape is changing. Four, understand principles of organization, so doctrine. Uh, and lastly, you're into the whole leadership gameplay, all that sort of stuff. And I was fascinated by this. And I started to realize this understanding of the landscape. How was I doing that in my business? And I, I had loads of things called maps. Um, but when I looked at them, I, 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 you know, if I look at a geographical map and I move, say, Australia and put it next to England, it changes the context of that map a big way. Um, but when I looked at these maps that I had a business, they're often just like little boxes with lines between them. And I could move the boxes around as long as I kept the lines the same, the map didn't change. And so it, I struggled with this until it dawned on me these weren't maps, they were graphs. And everything I had in business, which was called a map, was in fact a graph. So I set out creating these, uh, 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 it took me, oh gosh, 
couple of years thinking about it probably and uh, lots of sort of false efforts and uh, um, six months of actually solid 12-hour-a-day work, uh, basically, uh, most of it in the British Library, in order to build a very simple system for mapping a competitive environment. So I started using that. I used it at uh, places like Canonical, who provides something called Ubuntu. And we went from 3% of the operating system market, took 70% of cloud, it cost us half a million, took us 18 months. It was amazing. And I'd used it in loads of places. But I always had this idea that because I was doing it, that means, therefore, everybody must be doing it. And I sort of assume <laughs> that... that you know, this is what you learn to do at MBA schools. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I'd never done an MBA. And then it was about 2012 in government solving a particular problem. Um, I was sitting with a friend and they said, what's that? I said, oh, it's, uh, it's a map. And they said, you use that everywhere. And I said, yeah, that's how I do all the stuff I do. And it was like, I've never seen one of those before. And it was a big shock. And at that point, somebody said, well, what's it called? And I went, I don't know. It's called a map. Well, you can't just call it a map. You've got to give it a name. And it's just like, all right, it's a, a Wardley map. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the name was born. <laughs> uh, it, there was no great thought or wisdom yeah. to it. <laughs> I mean, and and yeah, I mean, it's nice to have something. I was, I was obviously preparing a little bit for the episode, and and you know, there's a there's a Wikipedia page about Wardley mapping, so it's oh, it's yeah. one of those things where it's like, you know, that'll be immortalized uh, now forever. It's amazing. <laughs> the, one of the things I've made it creative comments back in 2005, and the reason for this is um, I found it useful. I was hoping others would find it useful, and I come from an open source background anyway. So you used to heavily work in the Perl space, you know, in terms of uh, the company I ran, we all hired from Perl developers, Perl puppies, this sort of thing. Uh, I'd always taken an, uh, and I'm a terrible coder, so, but I, I, I'd taken an active involvement for other reasons. And so uh, I, I like that, that whole attitude. And so I made it creative comments. And I've got to say, the community that's built up, they've built awesome lists, they've built online tools, you know, they've written books, it's, uh, they're doing training courses, it's just amazing, uh, it's been spectacular. We even have a conference coming up on the 13th of October, uh, and um, Map Camp. Map Camp, yes, yep. uh, we have mappers from all over the world, We're talking about everything from the use of mapping uh, by the Brazilian government in sexual health campaigns to... Uh, we're probably going to have mapping in space. So, you know, uh, we had uh, various people involved in uh, producing satellite systems with maps to to sort of uh, you know really some weird and wonderful subjects as well, particularly uh, uh, around the economic changes that are happening. So yeah, I'm delighted, um, and I've got to say it's huge thanks uh, to the community because all I did was draw a couple of lines and put some words and did six months. It took me a long time to do it but it evolved and it, has, it continues to evolve and you've got the other things that kind of go alongside it i mean you've got those um platforms or principles or, or in terms of you know that the, these repeatable things is that right it, that, that appear in in different contexts if i go back to the sun Tzu, you, once you understand your landscape then you start to notice patterns and some of those patterns are shall we say uh, are patterns that you have no choice over I, they are the climatic patterns. It's not like you have a choice over whether the wind blows. You can't go, no wind, and it's blowing. So those are economic patterns. Like, for example, everything evolves. 
Okay, uh, if there's supply and demand competition, things will evolve. And so it's probably quickly worth describing what a map is. Uh, maps have three characteristics. You have an anchor, uh, such as magnetic north. You have position of pieces. Um, and then you have consistency of movement. So if I'm going north, uh, I'm going north. I'm not teleporting south or something like that. So um, position of pieces is this is north, south, east, western. So when mapping a competitive environment, the anchor we choose is the user. Um, and that user could be business, it could be government, it could be the public, it could be all sorts of Position is described through a chain of needs. So if a user needs a cup of tea and a cup of tea, well, what does that need? It needs a cup, it needs tea, it needs hot water. Hot water needs cold water, a kettle, kettle needs power. So you can create a chain of needs. And the further you are down the chain, the less visible it becomes. So if I'm having a cup of tea, I'm not normally worrying about the power being provided, used to heat the kettle, but but it's essential. And the last bit is movement, and that's done over an evolution axis. So that starts off with the genesis of novel and new, custom-built examples, products and rental services, commodity and utility. Now, that's for physical assets. It, those are four stages. You, you can actually do it for practices, knowledge, data. Now, once you've got that, what you start to discover with maps is you get patterns. So the first set of patterns are the climactic patterns. These are the ones you don't have choices over, and there's 30 of those. And then the next set you discover are the universally useful principles. Uh, this is called doctrine. So you do have choice. Uh, you can do this or not, but it turns out it's universally useful. So things like focus on user needs understand the components of your supply chain. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It turns and you've seen the doctrines evolve, I guess, haven't you, through the so years? what's happened uh, is over the years, as we've uh, used more and more maps, we've discovered more and more patterns. So originally I wrote all these patterns down and then I started to categorize them into, you know, so there's 30 economic, there's 40 basic uh, uh, principles, there's about 100 different forms of game. Um, so that's the leadership there. And most people are oblivious to all of this. And certainly, the more we use it, every now and then we go, oh, we think we found a new pattern. Every now and then. It's pretty, it's, it's not common. It takes a bit of time. It, it is really interesting. And, and, you know, I I guess in terms of looking at Wardley mapping, like I, it fits quite well in, in my mind about how I, I view the world, I guess. You know, it's one of these things where when you lay it all out, you sort of then just start to see it differently. And, and I think we were having a conversation recently, and it's like it's almost like you start thinking about things that you wouldn't usually think about. So definitely purpose. You know, you need that purpose of action. That's one of those things that you've noticed, I guess, change over the years is that, you know, while purpose for profit is, is definitely a traditional uh, organization uh, like kind of approach that nowadays will be kind of, you know, driven a lot more by individual purpose or, or principles of, of kind of values as well as organizations. And, you know, it's that sort of thing where it's almost like it gets quite philosophical when, when you are sort of dealing with some of the points rather than there being something like you say, the example you gave earlier, a kettle, where you can maybe exactly place things but like well exactly a map is, is is i guess is always in its context you know we could draw the same thing next to each other and come out with a very different looking landscape but it'll be a starting point for a conversation and we can always move forward uh, and and you know collaborate and, and and come to a consensus okay so a lot to unpack there some really fabulous points uh, the first is all maps are imperfect representations of space even geographical maps 
France. If you wanted a perfect map of France, You've it would to have to be, be one France. to one scale the size of France. <laughs> and as a map, that's useless. I mean, you could you imagine you know, you know, <laughs> open and open the car, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so all maps are imperfect representation, full stop. Secondly, they're also built on various assumptions, and so they're built on models, and all models are wrong. So, so, so the two things you can definitely say about that is it's wrong, and it's imperfect. Okay, so that's okay because it has a use. It, they still tend to be useful. That's what we found. So that's the first thing, uh, and which is also why people can try and spend an awful lot of time trying to create the perfect map. Don't. Find it as it's a communication mechanism between people. And it's much better that for somebody start out, put a rough map, and then get others to come in and say, no, actually, you know, that needs to be there, that needs to be there, because then you've got communication going. So then that's the next big thing, is that in most organizations, most organizations are run by stories. As a result of which, when somebody, uh, because we have an entire industry go around telling people the great leaders are great storytellers, um, when you challenge somebody's story, you're actually saying, I don't think you're a great leader, which is why people get really defensive. <laughs> um, and which is like, you know, executive comes up with an idea. This is why they should, we should take all the troops and walk off the cliff. Uh, you don't want to be the person going, is it a good idea to walk off the cliff? Because you know, you challenged me. You said, I'm not a great leader. Fine. Now, the beauty about maps, and uh, this is a, a trick I, I, I love architects. I picked up uh, uh, these tricks from architects is by getting the story taking the story and putting it in a map form you're exposing the assumptions in a way that i can challenge because i can look at the map and i go not that i think you're wrong i go i think the map is wrong and that way we can have a conversation i did that trick to get a bunch of brexiteers and remainers who in story form could not talk to each other and got them to discuss the problem through the medium of the map and it was great because even though any word they said in story form, they just got instant fight. Um, but in a, a mapping form, we could actually discuss. So it's interesting. So you know that's that's the first thing is it's imperfect, wrong, but it's it's useful. Second, it's uh, about the the communication structures that you actually have with with maps. That's where the real power comes. So the, the last thing is that I said about patterns, and one of the things they also use maps for. Uh, to do population studies of companies. So every decade, I publish a table uh, which has a list of phenotypic changes. I do these big surveys, lots of analysis, blah, blah, blah. And um, it's quite a long and involved process. So 10 years ago, it was all about the shift from structures being departmental to much more service cell-based. This is back in 2011. Big focus, open source, no longer cost reduction, but a weapon. Learning was away from analysts towards ecosystems, big data used, driven by resilience, M plus one, design for failure, failure testing, uh, disaster recovery, chaos engines. Now, so that was published in 2011, and people went, oh, those new characteristics, that's just startups. And of course, like today, 10 years later, every single big company wants to be those. So I did one in a population study in uh, 2021. So just last year, it's interesting. Structures shifting from hierarchical to non-hierarchical. Leaderships going from heroic to much more distributed, and this is all connected to things like awareness becoming less of an executive function but systemic. Things like the supply chain 
the traditional is much more one up, one down. That's what we know, who we bought from, who we sold to, becoming much more modelled. And also things like sustainability, since you mentioned it, shifting away from just being an operational cost to actually a core belief. And with communication driven by things like ethics. Now, people read this and go, oh, it's just startups and blah, blah, blah. blah. Give it 10 years. <laughs> Let's see where we are. And, <laughs> we'll and see it, where we are. <laughs> it, it is interesting because, you, you, you know, you have definitely touched on, especially that commoditization point. I mean, the whole kind of, you know, context of worldly mapping when you're looking at stuff moving from Genesis on the left to a commodity and utility on the right that is what mimics the world of cloud and, and and kind of, you know, this generation of IT that we're in now is we used to go and build and be very unique and call ourselves special and say we couldn't do it any other way. And, you know, that prevailed for, you know, the last, most of the last decade. And, and now we start to see a lot more companies and the companies who are winning offering these SaaS-based consumable productized services. And that's like the second order thing that's actually the sale the sale it's not just somebody else's cloud anymore i guess they're trying to offer these managed services and 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 kind of higher order services so one of the things is um as things evolve so if you're building something it's a good idea to map it all out as good as you can because the methods that you use will depend upon how evolved the components are um there's a great example you can find online which is high-speed rail building the railway in a virtual world. Now, that entire project was delivered ahead of schedule under budget, uh, which is pretty unusual for... Uh, in HS2, uh, anyway. In HS2. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> it may even be unique. Um, in government, yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't say it. But, but the point was, uh, uh, the CIO, James Finley, he maps it out. Uh, he sent me the map. We had a discussion. And the point is, once you have a map, you can do things like, for example, the commodity stuff, we want to outsource, or if we're going to build, because we can't outsource it, there's no utility provider, we use Six Sigma. Stuff on the left of the map, the Genesis, build in-house, agile techniques, particularly extreme programming. Stuff in the middle, which is evolving from Genesis to commodity, the product stages, uh, you want to buy off the shelf, or maybe you want to use, uh, either do it in internally, you want to use something like Lean, so Scrum, MVP, all that sort of stuff. And the reasons for this is because in the genesis, you're about reducing the cost of change because change is the norm. In the industrialized, you're you're about you know reducing deviation because you know that's what you want volume of exactly the same. And in the middle, you're about learning and reducing waste, which is why you need all those three. And in fact, this is a way of actually organizing yourself. This is something I did back in 2006. Uh, I just mentioned that because Gartner came up with bimodal. I couldn't stop laughing. They actually, because uh, as soon as they published all the futures of biomodal, I sent them a note saying, you know, quite rare post about how, how, how this is a <laughs> five years late complete gibberish, but there, there we are. Um, that's, that's I mean, it, it, it's, it's so true, though, isn't it, though, that, that when we are looking at our context and our landscape and, and what's in the hype and, and what's being talked at the sea level, bloody dinners, and it's almost now, we almost talk very much around like, what are we adopting now and what are the startups doing? But like you said, if you want to be this successful company in 10 years' time, you almost yeah. need to have thought about, okay, where's that landscape in 10 years' time, rather than I'm just going to replicate Amazon, I'm just going to be the next Microsoft. It, it, because, you know, back in 1995, you know, Microsoft and Amazon, if they'd chosen to replicate the companies of those days, they wouldn't be where they are now. There's a wonderful book called Reaching Cloud Velocity. It's the second book produced by AWS itself. And you'll find there's about 17 pages of mapping in there. 
And it goes through a particular model called the Innovate Leverage Commoditized Model, which I wrote about in 2005, which is basically what they do. They basically take things from product to a utility stage, so they industrialize stuff. In fact, they have something called the press release process, which is yeah, marvelous. PRFAQs, do love them well, myself. <laughs> so what people don't realize is uh, with a press release process, it prevents anybody from building anything novel and new because, you know, you have to write the press release of what it's going to be, and then that press release is what goes out, and you're measured against it. Well, you can't write the press release for teleportation, but you can write the press release for taking a product like compute and turning it into a utility. So going from compute as a product to compute as a utility, or platform as a product to platform as a utility. You can write those press releases because it's known to find problems, which you're just turning into utilities. And But the thing is, then people build on top, and you have to build them. With that billing data is the metadata because now everybody's your free research and development department. And so you can mine the metadata to spot future trends so you can work out what to commoditize. And that's the whole ILC model. And uh, whether consciously or not, I mean, it's in the book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, doing. isn't it? Because it's not just cloud, is it? You know, and we do, we sit there and go, okay, I'm worried about my data and my information going onto the cloud. And, and they say, well, you know, if you choose to put your data on there and put it in S3 and put all the controls in place, it'll be encrypted at rest. Um, and, it, it, you know, we can't see it. But like you said, the metadata exists and billing data is the core of how Amazon works. It, it is obviously how it has to be the core because they bill you for it. And <laughs> I think, it is interesting when you see that sort of, you know, what drives Amazon and their growth um, and you look at new products as and when they come out. And obviously it's a fully functioning metadata for billing purposes, but hmm, maybe they don't have a good sort of, you know, set of metadata for sustainability or carbon emissions or other things. Uh, because, well, it probably doesn't make money right now, um, or it isn't what drives so adoption. I, I, I love that because Amazon has an entire group which uh, looks at, going into the supply chain, which is how it's getting its uh, carbon data. And I, I thought last year that they would release, because they have billing per function in them. I thought they'd do carbon function last yeah, year. Nice. And maybe this year, maybe, but it's coming soon. And and because that radically, can, can you imagine, you, you know, you're building an application, you can either use Lambda and you can work out, you know, where, what the cost of every function is. Your refactoring now has financial value and you can work out how much carbon your application is actually burning. And so you can refactor to improve the carbon or something along those lines to get against your person who's got a traditional data center. Uh, he doesn't know any of those things. Tricks mm -hmm. at all. Uh, has no idea how to connect an application to the actual carbon, let alone its cost. <laughs> and, and on top, you know, they're running their own Kubernetes cluster or whatever. I mean, it's just like two different, completely different worlds. But a couple of things. Uh, mapping, of course, isn't just about technology. I mean, I've used it for mapping cultural systems, uh, government competitions, uh, nation state competition, all sorts of different areas. And, uh, you know, as I said, people have used it for satellites in space. People have mapped themselves, mapped education, mapped, <laughs> you know, things like agriculture. It's used in all sorts of different areas. So it's not just about uh, uh, technology. But the other thing is, because uh, you mentioned about sustainability and uh, uses. So it's interesting. When we, when we talk about maps, you'll often see there's a concept known as a pipeline on a map. And a pipeline is just basically there are several things which have the same meaning. And those several things are all evolving at different rates. So, for example, when we talk about power, we can talk about renewable power. 
fossil fuel power, nuclear power, whatever it happens to be. They're all different components. They all have the same common meaning of power, power for my kettle, for my cup of tea. They're all evolving at different rates. So they're all about choice. And that's one of the critical things about maps is when you're looking at a map, it fundamentally is about options. As in where you are, i.e. the past options have all gone, where you can take it forward, and even the lines are exchanges between components. So, you know, if a user needs a cup of tea, there's usually an exchange, as in my money goes for a cup of tea, or maybe my goodwill goes for a cup of tea, or something along those lines, whatever the exchange is. So A, it's it's not just about technology, long, long, long way from it. Okay. Now, uh, so, well, secondly, you can have you have areas of common meaning. And so to link it back to the point of users and sustainability, when we think about users, we think about them as a single dot. But in fact, users are a pipeline. There are today's users and tomorrow's users. Okay, and eventually tomorrow's users we hope will evolve into today, into today's. Okay. So the second thing is that today's users are concerned about success. And that needs competition, because you know, success against what? It implies some sort of competition. And competition has three basic forms. Uh, there is uh, competition is the act of seeking something together by, uh, with others. And we can do it by a conflict. We can fight with you. We can cooperate with you or we can collaborate. with you. Now, success is often about that conflict for today's users. Now, tomorrow's users are concerned about getting here today. So their interest is not your success, but in sustainability. They would like to be here They're to worry about success. And that sustainability depends upon collaboration. It requires us to collaborate with the future for the future to get here. But we don't do that. What we do is we ignore all of that stuff. We call it externalities and all the rest of it. And so you can map it out and we just basically discount. Uh, we, we basically say, that's really great. We can collaborate with the future so you have a future. Or we can take all your stuff and spend it now. And then we leave it up to you. <laughs> And we are notorious for this. <laughs> I, to be honest, it's such an interesting analogy just from what I've noticed since. So my journey into sustainability has probably only been kind of more of a focus over the last nine months. So, you know, I set up my own business last September. I left government and decided I'm going to jump into the wonderful world of consulting. And I was doing it for the first three months and it was always very traditional. It was like, okay, I know agile. I can do agile consulting. I know DevOps. I can advise people on culture. I, I know cloud, I can I give people cloud advice. And it was just very generic. I was just trying to kind of get out there and, and find work. And and somebody asked me, I was like, you know, actually, what do you want to do with your life? And, and I was like, oh, that's a nice question to add on to the pit of despair. Um, but I thought to myself, well, if there is something I could do, it'd been, I'd like it to try and, you know, be more sustainable. I'd like it to try and help save the world. I'd like it to try and do all these things. Um, and, and that's when I sort of started to look at this everything closer and, and actually go, okay, well, look at cloud provider A, in the context of sustainability rather than just in the context of, of, of whatever else. And I think it's been funny, a lot of the conversations, because I've, I've, I've ran into many senior execs in, in sustainability events over the last nine months. And it, it feels like today cloud providers are in that competitive conflict mode when it comes to tackling this problem. And, and we're all pointing at each other going, well, I can't do measurements for, for cloud CO2 emissions because it's not all consistent and it's apples and pears and they're not doing it anyway and it's like everyone's just blaming each other for the fact that you know depends on who you're talking 
out. Go on. Okay. You have much more. <laughs> Go on. Well, no, it's, it's really interesting. Okay, because part of the part of the, one of the massive very big problems is um, when we talk about go from users and what they need, and we've got this need for sustainability against the need for success, and comes collaborative, etc. But of course, that competition occurs over a landscape. All right, and our issue is, you know, when it comes to landscapes, we're quite good at understanding the territory of physical landscape. I mean, particularly in defense and things, we've got radars, we've got maps, we've got situation rooms and all the rest of it. Well, I say territory specifically because, as you, you know, you work with governments, governments need two things. They need a society and they need legitimacy to govern over that society. Societies need people. Yeah, okay, that's great. Um, legitimacy needs a area of sovereignty. Okay, so something to be sovereign over. There's territorial sovereignty. There's, um, as in physical, there's uh, political, there's cultural, there's digital, there's economic sovereignty. All of these, and in fact, that entire concept can be mapped. Okay, and it's important to map. So when we come back to um, users, sustainability, competition, success on one side, collaboration, sustainability on the other, it operates over a territory. That territory is not the physical. It's the digital, which is the territory of supply chains. And guess what? We are absolutely hopeless at understanding our supply chains. Most organizations understand what we call one up, one down, who we bought from and who we sold to. That is not a supply chain. Uh, that is just inputs and outputs. And in fact, our inputs is is often very, very poor as well. And it's funny because it, it depends on what you ask, isn't it? It's like, you know, you speak to that supply chain or, you, or that one person down and you could just ask them nothing. You can go, cool, yeah, you can deliver your service for this much money, done. Like, I'm going to leave the uh, risk at the door. that's what normally happens. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had uh, uh, a friend of mine did the, um, went through the supply chain of egg manufacturing. And for a single, single path, it took six months to get to the bottom of what the actual supply chain. Now, this has real-world implications uh, because right now we've had lots of conflict going on. Uh, and, of course, what's happening is people are throwing bombs, not just physically, but into the landscape of supply chains. And, of course, this is having all sorts of knock so it's sanctions and all the rest of it. Same thing. Uh, so this is having all sorts of knock-on and if you want to know how bad the impacts can be, if you don't understand your supply chain, you could do something like, I don't know, ban the use of fertilizers because you want to be organic fertilizers. That can lead to crop collapse. Then you can do tax breaks because you want to encourage the industry. That can lead to government, massive government funding loss. Then you get basically the conflict going on in Ukraine. So their energy prices go on up. Your export finances collapse. Uh, because you haven't got the revenue coming in. So that's oil. That's your fishing industry gone. And now because most of your power plants or your electricity isn't generating, uh, that's many other industries. That's Sri Lanka. I was about to say, okay. which country is it? <laughs> it is Sri Lanka. And it's on the, you know, it, it's gone from leading sort of light growing economy to basically on the verge of collapse because of decisions made because of poor understanding of supply chain. And that's the common thing. In companies now, the distinction here is there are a few who are different. If you really want to fix or have any hope in creating something which is sustainable, you're going to have to understand the supply chain beyond one up, one down. And so, groups like Amazon, they 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 dig into the entire supply chain. Others do. Tesla does. But it's the rarity. It's not common. 
Most are at that one up, one down rather modeling. And if you, without that information, and really what we need is a government department of supply chains because we can't leave it up to the market. It's quite clear. <laughs> You're right. And, and, you know, I've followed some of your posts on this recently. And, you know, one of the most interesting ones was sort of, um, let's guess the name of the country because I'm going to get it wrong. But I think it was the Netherlands, was it, with the VAT mapping? Or was that? Oh, Hungary. 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 A transaction level data at VAT used. Now, they didn't map. They graphed the entire economy because people will go, it's a complex adaptive system. So we can't possibly know what it is. That's another way of saying that's a really, really hard problem. Hard problem. <laughs> I want to go and do something else. Uh, so basically, they um, they mapped out. Oh, sorry, not mapped out. They graphed out in this case uh, using VAT level transaction data, and they've discovered that you know their entire economy. There's a hundred companies at the bottom of these actual supply chains, which impact seventy five percent of GDP. And there are about 32 companies which impact 20, any one of them having problems. 25% GDP goes whoosh. And they, they, they're just frightening sort of uh, things. I mean, you, you have the banks saying we're too big to fail. No one knows that because no one actually understands the supply chain and finance, as, as we discovered with uh, credit uh, uh, collateralized debt obligations. Uh, uh, supply chains are the new CDOs in a way. Uh, we've got the uh, double B tranche of Sri Lanka going pop. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're sitting here in the UK on the double A tranche CDO um, with no understanding of what's actually... What, what's going on in the world. What's, it, what's inside it. <laughs> yeah, I think it is interesting because, you know, you look at that point and you go, okay, well, traditionally policy as a government, the way you govern, it, you apply blanket policy across maybe the whole of the industry or the, or the whole of the sector and you go okay this is how you operate this is the you know what the impositions i put on you in order for you to function and that, and that may be for example when you're talking about banking to solve the the issues in the in the banking supply chains they said well hold more money just in case uh, you know that was one of the things they imposed but you know if you did graph it out and you know potentially use the data further to understand oh actually there's only a hundred companies here that actually are the core of you know 75 percent of our country imagine how you could focus those efforts in in enforcement in in policy making to actually add value there 2016 when i was more involved in government i haven't been involved in government quite some time i did actually have a question that was asked uh a department of biz this is uh, because of the whole brexit i wanted to know what the critical the hundred critical supply chains are no one had that answer. Or if they did have that answer, they've hidden Too it hard. under CNI, but nobody else <laughs> seemed to know what the answer was. <laughs> and yes, yeah, CNI, just for anyone who's listening, critical national infrastructure. We'll get back to our interview soon, but I really want to highlight that it's not all doom and gloom in the world. So now is the part of the show where we shine a spotlight on companies, charities, and organizations that are contributing to making the world a better place. Supporting ethical businesses and charities that are doing good in the world is the easy way for all of us to also contribute when we're able to. Today's company spotlight is on Green Pixie. They're a company based in the UK who are focused on bringing sustainability into the digital world. They offer several tools and services focused on understanding of carbon emissions. One of them is the website Cargo the Calculator, where you can put in any URL to understand the CO2 emissions of the website. And they recently received seed funding for a new tool called Cloud Net Zero, which allows you to understand your carbon emissions when you're using cloud services. Make sure you check them out on LinkedIn. They always are posting great things around the company and what they're working towards. And they also host events and other things as well. So make sure you check them out. 
So we talked about loads of things and, and, and maybe to try and focus some stuff to the future and, and, and maybe what we could think about. I guess, you know, if we're thinking about who are these people or companies of tomorrow, who are the users of tomorrow, what do you think are, is going to change then? What is going to change about people's values or principles or, or, or the world they operate in? So, um, you don't first know, of all, but... there's the, 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 the population uh, study that they did uh, in 2021, and it pointed to a whole bunch of next-generation companies with very, very specific characteristics. Now, you know, I did this in 20, uh, 2011. I will do it in 2031. Uh, there's a volume enough data to suggest this is a pretty reasonable bet. And so what I'm looking at is a, a future of companies which are more non-hierarchical, more distributed, use of swarming. Uh, um, so think about higher companies like that who basically, uh, you know, they got into producing uh, protective uh, PPE because basically they have a system whereby anybody can suggest a business model. Uh, principles, uh, being organized by principles. Uh, uh, I, I mean, uh, being more enforced. So this is a bit like Amazon. So rather than principles being sort of, uh, you know, words which don't mean something, or we're just going to, to change about every that. eighteen but months as well, because <laughs> some sort of t target operator models come in, or you yeah. know, somebody has left at the top. That's the most frustrating thing when you're looking at business at that context, because the landscape never stays the same in enterprise sometimes because someone's got an agenda or, or something's changing or whatever else. But yeah, Amazon's leadership principles, I do look at them a lot of the time and, and think to myself, okay, wow, they've worked, they've put in place a culture. Yeah. But when you look at the culture of Amazon as a whole, when you, when you think of it in aggregate, it is also a little bit worrying, I guess, in some ways of, of maybe how they treat their workers or, or, or their goals and, and profits. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the kind of rate of expansion. And it is interesting. It worked. But this is where they've ended up is, is with the culture they've developed. Um, so, so in, okay, so interestingly, uh, you know, most of the stuff I map is the area of competition. Uh, once something becomes industrialized, there's another decision that needs to be made is the point at which you take something to being a public good. So there's, as things start off as social goods as ideas, we commodify them into the first ever thing, the genesis of something. So I have an idea to do teleportation, and then I commodify that idea into the first ever teleportation system. A lot of work goes into that. And then over time, it evolves until teleportation is a utility. So that's the process of commoditization, uh, very different from commodification. So it becomes a utility, but at that point it becomes a utility that at that point you then have to think about government should be stepping in and turning it into a public good. And that is a process of decommodification. Uh, so we start going, you know, healthcare is really great, but we should turn it into, you know, nationalized healthcare. I mean, the internet is a great example of this, you know, you know the, the, how the internet started in America and, and, and obviously how we use it today is very different. But one thing we don't consider in the majority of companies is that it is a public right or, or utility-based access for, for good. You know, we're very lucky in the UK. We have competition, which has reduced prices, but it, it, it's left to the hands of companies and that has bad adverse impacts. For example, maybe you won't have great fiber in your village because BT has never really thought about investing, laying the cable there, and, and it wasn't really funded by government. So who, who's going to do it because there's not enough customers? And I mean, America is a, a much worse example of this situation. But yeah, if we'd said to ourselves, because look at COVID, it was such a, 
I think about the internet and, and also the context of, of someone like Jeremy Corbyn in, in politics of, you know, one of the things they said was, you know, access to the internet should be a given right. It should be a utility. Mm -hmm. We should maybe set up a public company to put cheap internet providers in and also expand out the whole of the network at the same time. Uh, and everyone just laughed at him and went, ha, ah, that's stupid. What, what are you doing? Why would anyone need to get in there? Companies are doing it really well. Competition exists in the UK. You're an idiot. And then COVID happened. And we suddenly sat down and went, hold on a minute. How many children, how many teachers, how many individuals don't have the right infrastructure to work from home? And how does that affect now the world that we live in and, and, and the, this massive change we've just had overnight? And I sit there and go, wow, if only we'd maybe considered that in the context of it all. Like, <laughs> Well, we, we should be. And it's not just there. So if you want a country which is actually doing really well at um, it's not going to be popular, but it's China. Uh, China does does very much. Um, first of all, it understands supply chains, which is why you know it, it, it builds stockpiles of poor materials like sand. You know, um, <laughs> you've got a whole bunch of artificial islands all built with water eroded sand. Water eroded sand is basically uh, uh, it's becoming a rarity, which is why we're having criminal gangs steal off beaches. Uh, we've got loads of air eroded sand, but that's not very useful for building concrete or anything else along those lines. And so they, they you know... Because it needs textures, is it, from the water? The air, the air sand is too smooth, is it? It, it yes, doesn't that's, that, that's do correct. the same thing. Now, water eroded sand is uh, is actually... <laughs> yeah, there's a real problem. Uh, there's a real problem with many, many materials. I mean, um, uh, somebody was saying, oh, we should have sanctions on China. Well, if you're going to have sanctions on China and Russia at the same time, that's most of your silicon, a uh, big chunk of the silicon gone. <laughs> yeah. And there's only so many silicon wafers until we run out. So that's mm. computers and that's supply chain gone. I mean, we've and seen computer supply chains over COVID in the last few years completely get to a halt and slow down every single industry. Yeah, well, it, it, it's only different areas, it, it, even to the point of uh, armor-piercing bullets. And somebody said, what do you mean? Well, that requires antimony. That's the core, uh, one of the core materials. And I think it's about 70, 80% of the world's antimony currently is produced in Russia and China. So uh, if you don't want... Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but there's so many... It's because people... There's a real poor understanding of the interconnections. And there's an assumption that if something breaks, the market will pick it up. And that is so flawed. Because especially when you do the mapping and you realize, okay, well, this is broken, but, oh, that broken piece was, was underlaying a hundred different legs or, or is different. And, 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 you know, those hundred companies collapse before they can adapt in most cases, I guess. <laughs> and on top of this, we want to talk about sustainability and everything else in spaces which we do not understand the landscape. That is the problem. Uh, I mean, if you're going to say, what is the one thing uh, to, to me, what's the one thing we should be doing right now? Well, Brexit taught us, COVID taught us, you know, this conflict is telling us, sustainability is telling us. But the one thing that we've really got to get a hand is A, understanding the entire landscape. And it's not just the graph, because we've got to think about how evolved the components are, how substitutable, how excludable, how rivalrous they are. So we need to understand that information. And we also need to build policy based upon that. Because when something is a utility, you've got to be thinking about how to turn that into a public good. When something's in genesis, you've got to be thinking government as an investor. So the policies that, you know, in the middle and product, yeah, sure, laissez-faire, let the market run free. But there's um, there's this real, it's a bit like um, 
Uh, we, we do this uh, terrible one-size-fits-all method, and, and they do it everything from project management to finance to even government policies. So project management is agile everywhere. Guess what? Extreme programming everywhere doesn't work. Uh, Six Sigma everywhere. Guess what? It doesn't work. <laughs> You've got to use a bit of everything, okay, based upon the context. Finance. Uh, well, well, we're going to do uh, VC-based investment. Uh, it doesn't work everywhere. Yeah, we're going to do you know uh, um, utility-based charging. Mm. Uh, it doesn't work, doesn't for, work for every model. I mean, yeah. it doesn't work everywhere. You've got to use a mix and government policy as well. You know, we're going to have laissez-faire everywhere, free market run. Doesn't work. All right, we're going to have centrally planned everywhere. Doesn't work. I mean, look at like energy is a great example, isn't it, for the laissez-faire? Is you know, it may have worked in previous contexts, but now we're getting to this crunch point where we're you know faced with these externalities that we don't understand, and we haven't insulated our country, and we don't have our own energy production that's renewable. We're starting to feel the pinch, and and I think like the that's where it's like, okay, well, where's the policy to help us move from today to the future? I guess it is. It's an interesting learn one. from China first. Understand the supply chain. So understand the environment. By the way, mapping is taught Peking University, just to, just to say. So understand your environment. Once you understand your environment, then you can start doing mixed policy on top because then you can start to go, right, this is the bit we need to be turning into a, a, a social good. So we need to decommodify, or publicly, we need to decommodify this. This area is where we should be doing government business investment investor encouraging commodification of that space and this bit is where the market can run free allow commoditization to run right but you've got to be able you can't do that unless you can actually see the landscape uh, and that's the bit i think we're missing that's interesting so yeah i guess yeah so anyone who's listening working in technology working in whatever industry Give that a think do you understand your supply chain and and to be honest this is one of the things when as a product manager I love to see maps and webs and how everything interacts. It's 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 part of my role and and why I guess I like worldly mapping as well. But it is it, you know you you sort of speak to one person and then go to the person behind them. What's driving them in their I don't know business supply chain? What's what's the motivations and 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 the, and the pressures that they're under? And and you know that's how I think about some of these things. But yeah, have a think about in your world. Do you understand your supply chain? Do you understand how it all interconnects? And yeah, I guess like you're saying that'll help us be more sustainable because obviously sustainability isn't achievable in our current system of growth and kind of this, I guess, competitive kind of almost, I'm trying to think of the right word, but we need to move to a more circular, reusable, consumable, not, not consumable, but this sort of a different model. And unless we understand the supply chain and everything else around it, I don't see how we can make that change at least. Agree, disagree? Um, well, no. <laughs> Partially, because I hear people coming up with wonderful stories about we need to go into a circular economy and everything's going to be recycled and blah. Great. But do we actually understand the landscape in which we're operating? Are we making choices? It's like the exec coming along and saying, I've got this vision that the way to solve this problem is everybody to walk off the cliff. And so you can't challenge the story because it's the story. You know it doesn't sound right, which is why we need to say, let's have a map. Let's look at it. Let's look at what our options are. Let's discuss on the map, not in a story form. Because I, I, you know, it's the same problem. I used to work in the environmental field in the 1990s. Uh, so I did one of my masters is environmental and uh, management and energy use. 
And I have to say, when I worked in the environmental world, we knew the problems heading towards us. We knew that they could be solved, okay? But we also knew that nobody would do anything about it until the effects were so very visible uh, that they were in their face, at which point we didn't know whether we would have crossed the, the tipping point. Do we even know now? What's the overshoot going to look like? <laughs> well, this is the problem with um, you know what we're doing in terms of the environment. The environment is a complex system, and so it's also you know, it doesn't mean we can't graph things out. Of course, we can, but there are all sorts of shall we say uh, potential feedback loops that we're not aware of. Um, so it's interesting, um, uh, Rumsfeld. <laughs> quite funny to bring him up in an environmental context but he talked about uh the known knowns the things we know we know uh the um the uh known unknowns the things we know we don't know and the unknown unknowns which are the things uh we don't know we don't he missed i think the biggest group of all okay which is the unknown knowns the things we don't know that we do actually know. Yeah. Because we don't have a mechanism of communicating this stuff effectively, uh, which is part of what the whole thing of maps were about. It's why I can go, there's 30 economic patterns. I put that list up and people go, oh, I sort of realised that, but I've never seen it. Or I do the doctrine, there's 40, focus on use and needs, understand your supply chain, challenge assumptions. I mean, these are like, people go, Oh, wow, yeah, obvious. makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really interesting though you say that. The, so yeah, the unknown known. So because at the end of the day, you know, you look at the way the world's developed over billions of years and, and all of the systems and processes in place, they've came up and gone and, and changed and iterated. And, and we've got to this point where, you know, we're in an ecosystem, but it is a complicated thing and we can observe some things that we can see, but we don't always know what are the underlying impacts or changes if we if we disrupt this one thing and that magnetic field is 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 a big impact on birds like there's so many things that we could say and and you know even down to the micro level of the immune system like there's so many i guess unknown knowns about how our body even reacts to things <laughs> okay so there are unknown knowns i there's things we don't know that we do actually know and so sri lanka is that example and so we got the problem in the uh, UK as well. So Sri Lanka, they basically, they said, we're not going to have, uh, we're not going to use fertilizers. And that caused crop collapse because the microbiological structure of the soil was so poor, it was dependent upon uh, uh, synthetic energy sources such as, you know, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, potash, potassium. Okay? That's because of our monoculture approach to, to farming in those areas as Guess well, isn't what? it? So there's an entire field of regenerative farming, and it takes years to get the soil structure back to a state. That, and, and we've got this problem within the UK as well. Oh, well, um, probably. So it wasn't all uh, reduced fertilizers. Gosh! Uh, Surprise. Crop collapse. Surprise. It shouldn't have been. <laughs> I guess no no. This is this is the problem when you get decisions made based on. I'm trying to find the right word. It feels a little bit more like feelings and 
stories. Yeah, like okay, but yeah, back to that point. Then it is, isn't it? It's lack like of challenge. Yeah, it, that lack of challenge. So you know, if we look at the rise of of certain governments or or maybe even fascist type leaders, when they are telling stories and and you're sitting there and you can't challenge them and and say that isn't actually the case and and you know when they're saying things that are clearly untrue and you can't challenge them, that's when you're going to end up with these bad decisions and, and and the wrong decisions being made, I guess. But yeah, that's that's really interesting. Well, so it's it's not that. Uh, is it that people can't? It's just the challenges they listen to, and, and, and no, there's an element you can't. But it, it's you see this in corporations all the time. And you've got an executive who's read some article or whatever, uh, who's basically got their story. We're going to do an AI thingamajig, whatever. Uh, and that he's spoken to the story. Amazon account team recently and got a quantum ledger database in his mind. <laughs> okay, but if you now challenge them, you're challenging the story. So you're you're challenging their leadership, which is why people get defensive. That's why you need to get it out of the story into a format that we can challenge more neutrally, such as the map. Because we're not saying you're wrong, we're saying the map is wrong. That's all. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. That challenge, I was speaking to someone recently about leadership principles and the traditional hierarchical view of what is a leader. And, you know, this idea that you should be deferent to these individuals because they're in a position of power. And that obviously puts a blanket on any challenge. It puts a, a issue on loads of communication. It, it makes people not interact in the same way. And I can see how maybe using swarming and, and, and leadership, leader less leadership as you put it or you know we've seen it in other contexts as a um, servant world servant leadership as well oh Eve yes well <laughs> i mean what the, the, you, you want to know whether new leaders are going to be built that's where they're going to be built i'm glad These to play world of warcraft then hmm? <laughs> i've been playing world of warcraft since i was about eight years old oh, I got, I was well, like... <laughs> look, the ability to create you know i created a guild of world of warcraft in the early days uh, i can't remember how many people had it's about five six hundred it was uh, uh, fairly, uh, there is a limit to the size. Eh? Well, I don't know if it still is. They, they studied change. it, actually, didn't they? Mm -hmm. um, they studied those relationships in the context of guilds, because of, of, it's such a massive population, the, the WoW, at, at one time. They actually said there was, I don't think you've talked about this before, you know, you start to lose the community at a certain number. It's unsustainable as, an, as a network, as a system. So it, it's, it's interesting, because um, there are all sorts of limits and all sorts of issues in terms of how you actually get that number of people together. But also, you're not paying anybody. So you've got to find a way of motivating people without money. And that's what people struggle with. <laughs> well, that's why they all collapse as well, because usually in guilds, like I've seen over the years, it's never just a slow trickle of decline or, or change and, and, and this, you know, this replacement of leaders at the top. You have these people at the top who, who hold on quite tight and then it all goes tits up, something collapses somewhere and everyone is a mass exodus and they leave and there's a, a news story about it. There's a bank being robbed. There's a, in, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's, it's always quite interesting. But anyway, I, that's a great thing to end on. But I think we're coming to the limit of, of, of sort of maybe what people might be interested in listening to. I've really enjoyed it. I'm sure many I people... I have as well, so thank That's you. good. I'm so glad. For the final thing then, um, as part of, of thanking you for coming onto the podcast, we're going to date £500 to an organisation of your choice. So which right. organisation would you like that to be? I would like... To, uh, you're, you're, you're based in the UK, aren't you? Yeah. All right. Find your local food bank. Perfect. I will. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll. Yeah. I'll. I'll actually go to a local food bank. Maybe I, I donated the Trussell Trust recently, so I'll. Um, I'll see if there's. Um, yeah. You're I right. mean, we we've got uh, 
Again, uh, so for example, the Food Standards Agency does a fantastic job of looking down through supply chains. They do a great, great, great job. I've got to say, world admiration for the Food Standards Agency. Uh, and you know, we we came close at various times in, in uh, COVID to having problems, and of course, we've got more problems coming down. And as with environmental change, there'll be more shocks. So we've got to, you know, we've got to a understand the connections in the supply chain, b act accordingly, and of course, we've got to protect, provide support mechanisms for people. And well, I wish it was policy based yeah. rather than um, you know relying on David Cameron's big society to backfill. Um, yeah. which is basically where it feels like we are, but it is what it is. So, yeah, definitely do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a lovely rest of the day and, and yeah, speak to you soon. Absolute pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by Imbue, a cloud sustainability company. If there's one thing that you can do for me this week, it would be to go out and learn Wardley Mapping. There's loads of great resources that you can access online, whether that's learnwardleymapping.com or even MapCamp, which is coming up in October, which is a fully virtual conference where you can come and map with the rest of us. So have a great rest of the week and I'll see you soon.